Imagery is really the charge that we bring to the energy in our body-mind system. And so if you begin a practice and you have a negative image, then eventually you're going to invoke negative uh, feeling states. And then you're going to attach meaning to those feeling states, which becomes, you know, one way that we experience emotions. But if I have a positive image of myself, a positive image of what I intend to accomplish, a positive image of where I'm going, and I've actually connected to that and practice that every day, then I, I create this kind of memory of a future that hasn't happened yet, but mm -hmm. it will more likely happen the more I practice it. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Zen trained lifetime martial artist, retired Navy SEAL commander, entrepreneur, and New York Times bestselling author, Mark Devine joins us today to discuss thriving in a VUCA world, the power of imagery practice, and how to deal with stress and anxiety in the moment. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Um, you've been on my radar for several years. I, I first read uh, Way of the Seal uh, way back when, I don't know, roughly maybe five years ago. And I also dug into Kokoro Yoga a little bit as I tried to start a yoga practice. Maybe we'll talk about that later because I was unsuccessful. But I think, you know, as I read your website and, and certainly reading your books, I feel like maybe there's a little bit of similarity between what Tara and I like to do at Forging Metal with your brand of mental toughness. And even though you do some hardcore things and you're a former Navy SEAL, so that's obviously hardcore, you seem to come at mental toughness from a little bit. And, and I don't know if, if you're going to agree with this term or not, but maybe from a little bit of a softer side, because you really incorporate mindfulness and yoga as cornerstones to being mentally tough, which may seem a little counterintuitive to some. Why do you emphasize those things, Mark? And would you call your mental toughness brand a little bit of a softer approach? Well, I think it's incorrect to assume that softer equals bad. Okay. <laughs> or equals uh, something less than harder. It's actually a re it's a, it's a balancing of the hard. You know, I use the metaphor of the oak and the reed with some of my SEAL trainees. I said, you know what? So there's times where you need to project yourself as a mighty oak, especially when facing an enemy and you want to scare the shit out of them. There's other times, though, where there's a tsunami coming after you, and it's better to transform yourself into a reed that just lay down and let that sucker move on by, and then you can spring back up. And if all you do is practice hard, then you don't have the ability to transform yourself into the resilient reed that needs to step out of the way or, you know, um, bounce back quickly. So, I, you know, today uh, I've been a lifetime martial artist, and that uh, definitely informed my perspective on this issue of mental toughness, which uh, in our pre-talk, you, you know, correctly pointed out, it's a difficult topic for people to wrap their heads around because that's all they use is their head to understand these things. Until you learn to connect with your heart and your intuitive uh, mind, you know, mental toughness is just pushing, pushing, pushing until you either break through or you get kicked in the jimmies enough that you move on to a different target and you call that a failure, which equals bad which as uh, you all know, of course, the failure is not bad. It's just learning. So um, 
my, my first martial art, I was fortunate enough to stumble into when I was uh, in the white collar profession. I was going to NYU Stern School of Business, getting my MBA, and I was working toward a certified public accountancy certificate in New York City. I didn't even have an inkling of wanting to join the military. In fact, military equaled, you know, somebody who really just couldn't make it in the real world. That was my family's kind of idea of it, a Northeast Coast family. I know where that came from, of course, because my dad ran a car into his fraternity house, drunk one night, and the judge, you know, the next day looked at him and said, hey, you have choice A, uh -huh. go to jail, or choice B, join the, join the army. And he goes, B. <laughs> so he never had do an association of the military. But the martial arts I stumbled into was a traditional karate style, but it was founded by the guy who was running that school. And he had thousands, hundreds of thousands of students around the world. And one of the things that was really unique about him is he was a Zen practitioner. I say Zen master. He probably would say, no, 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 I'm not. But I sure was in my eyes. And so we practiced uh, meditation before and after every class. And then Thursday nights, we did an hour long sit. Not everyone. It was optional. And ironically, there were out of hundreds of, hundreds of students at the school, there were about 10 of us who did that. And as a white belt, I was, I was the only white belt. They were all black belts. I just loved it for some reason, right? I was drawn to that. And that meditative practice of Zen and what followed from that is what opened me up to even consider the SEALs or the military as a possible path and gave me the foundational skills of resiliency and mental toughness that now I define mental toughness by in terms of what it really means. And that was, you know, where we kind of started this is the ability to juxtapose the hard and the soft and to practice them and to apply them when necessary, and ultimately to apply them equally in real time. And those are masterful skills, which take me a lifetime to try to figure out and parse out and, and now teach to my folks that I uh, train and coach at Unbeatable Mind and seal fit. Mm, I want to so talk to you about those. Start, but <laughs> yeah, I, it's such a beautiful um, kind of balance between when we're talking about the hard and the soft, as you just mm -hmm. did, and you think martial arts, which we think you might think, I, th I do think of it being a little softer. You think of military as being hard. I'm just mm -hmm. very curious since you started martial arts first mm -hmm. uh, before the military, how did that work together in the SEALs when you're coming in with this mindfulness and meditation philosophy? Um, how did that incorporate? Did it incorporate well into your SEAL work or not so much? It, it did. It did in that the skills were very, very um, applicable, useful, and for me, necessary. It kept me alive and it saved my life many times. Having said that, when I was in training and in my day, they didn't teach this stuff, but they are now. In fact, they are teaching a lot of the unbeatable mind principles now in SEAL training and also Air Force Pararescue and other special ops units. Such things as our box breathing practice, you know, our, um, our version of mindfulness, uh, positive, you know, internal dialogue and the imagery work that we do. So it's really, really promising what's happening now in spec ops. Cause you know, I, I know also that they're doing them to make a better warrior that can go out and, you know, inflict more violence in the world. So I get that, but it also, as you know, that anybody who takes up an internal practice is chipping away at the biases as well as the negativity that, you know, drives their behavior. And so I experienced this myself. It led me to leave the SEALs and want to train or become a teacher of these things. 
but um, it's that Trojan horse, right? To be able to teach these skills of self-awareness and, and inner um, perspective, beginning to recognize that we create the world that we live in. That, that I think it's really appropriate to teach um, the pointy edge of this military sphere these skills so they can begin to suddenly sense that, hey, this is not a disconnected world, this is an interconnected world. So even in warfare, you can make decisions that make the world a better place. Generally speaking, in terms of what not to do, who not to kill, right? What not to say, and to project a really more, much more positive uh, view. And, and frankly, my perspective is that ancient warriors always had that perspective, right? So I've done numerous different trainings, including like native Apache training and, and in the native, the native Apache system, the warriors were the last to pick up the weapon. They did it only as a last resort and only when all other options you know, were tossed aside and they did it really to, with the eye that they would preserve as much life or prevent as much destruction as possible. So I, I consider, you know, from the warrior perspective of the skills that we teach and that, you know, you guys teach to be um, skills that are applicable across many domains. And they're going to make the people who practice them more resilient and mentally tough. But frankly, those are just words to describe more whole and more um, connected and more uh, world-centric, meaning they take a perspective of we're all in this together, we're all humans, we're all the same color on the inside, we all have the same fears and aspirations, we're all on this planet to grow and learn and evolve, and so um, let's stop fighting and let's find a way to get along and let's find a way to share. And um, at the same time, you know, not everyone has that perspective or the development level. So it's, it's meaningful to be able to, you know, or useful to be able to protect yourself or your country from, you know, those who are maybe the more violent side of, of society. Mark, let's go back to, let's, let's focus on this, this idea of not only mindfulness, but a mindfulness practice of meditation. So many people that I talk to about this, I can, I can show them the research. I can show them how this is effective. And then they say, I'm too busy. I can't stay focused. Uh, it doesn't work for me. You know, I, I get a lot of that resistance and I'm sure you do as well. What is your response to that? For the people that say they can't sit still for uh, dare, not even an hour like you did. I've never done an hour, but even 10 minutes, I, I get a lot of resistance about that. And w- what would be your response to that? Well, there's a few ways to look at it. One is they really haven't established in their sense of priorities, the value proposition, you know, let's say for uh, what meditation can mean to them and how it can transform them. Maybe they haven't had that transformative experience or the breakthrough insights or, you know, some of the things that I've experienced and probably you guys have experienced. And so, you know, it's a very personal journey, meditation. It's, it's not something that um, you can just feed someone, say, do this, like practice, and you're going to experience this immediate effect. Right? It, it's, a, it's a long-term commitment. And I learned that first when I hit the bench with Mr. Nakamura. So it requires a diligence around it, right? It requires that we just stick to it for long enough to see some of the results. And the results are not the type of results you see when you do a weightlifting program or a weight loss program, right? Which are very demonstrable and, and benchmarkable. And you can see them with biometrics. This we're, we're talking about psychometrics here. 
And you can't really benchmark and track psychometrics externally, right? A, a really good teacher can, but they're few and far between. So that's one perspective is that it takes patience. We got we to gotta point out, a good teacher needs to point out what the individual is to be looking for psychometrically, internally, in terms of uh, change of perspective, in terms of a sense of maybe a little clarity, in terms of a little bit of separation from thoughts and emotions, um, and peace of mind, right? So you can point to those things only after usually a, a month or two or three months of dis, you know, consistent daily practice. So it really helps to have a teacher who is motivating and who has can demonstrate a different way of being like Nakamura did to me. He was different than other people, other human beings I was around because he had been a lifetime practitioner. So when I observed him, I said, that's different than this and this. And I understand that what made that difference was sitting on this bench. It wasn't the martial arts necessary. It wasn't the action part. It was the silence part. And so it was very motivating to me to say, okay, if I just do this, I can become like that. It's not unlike going into the SEAL teams. You see these big, badass instructors and you're like, holy cow, these are like a modern superheroes. But if you have the perspective that there by the grace of God go out, you know, they were in my shoes once. So if I just did what they did day after day for several years, I'll be like that. And sure enough, I was. So meditation practice, you have to have pointing out skills from instructor. You have to have modeling and, and mirroring of really effective practice. And what does that look like? What does that behavior look like? And that's, again, that's difficult to find in our society because a lot of the teachers don't actually embody the practice as well as, let's say, a master would in the past or in the East. And the third thing I'll say about this uh, subject is that many people um, come to mindfulness when they should not be doing mindfulness. They really should be doing just a strict breath practice to rebalance their homeostatic system to come uh, bleed off stress. Because stress is a, uh, it's psychosomatic, it's, it's physical and mental. So stress felt or experienced physically, which everyone has because you're, you're constantly trapped in sympathetic nervous breakdown with the way our culture is built. So when you sit down to um, meditate, you're automatically fidgety and agitated and distractible. That's a physiological response to the buildup of stress. So we need to bleed that off. And then because your brain is your body, it's not your mind, your brain is your brain that agitation and stress is expressed as anxiety, um, as discomfort and resistance. And you're going to have uh, the monkey mind, which is really just your mind operating in high beta or even gamma, which is bouncing around a lot of thoughts. And those thoughts just get propagated and, and perpetuated in these loops. So we always start our students just in a practice of breath control, box breathing deep diaphragmatic nostril breathing with a hold at the top and the bottom after the inhale and the exhale. And we do it in a very simple, effective, safe uh, pattern. And this serves two purposes. One, it de-stresses the body and brain. And because it's de-stressing the brain, it's bringing thought patterns down into a kind of a manageable level so that now that we can begin to do the second phase of the practice, which is concentration training. And when I started Zen training, I didn't go into mindfulness practice, but mindfulness practice came to me when my mind had developed that concentrated state 
to where I could release some of the energy of concentration and allow content to re-arise. Yet I had developed the capacity to stay separated from that content or not merged with it. And so I really think it's a, a, a challenge to jump right into mindfulness practice because what you end up with is just sitting and ruminating, right? Or my friend Tom Bailu calls it thinkitating. And, and it's, you don't get very far. There are, Ron, some health benefits to just sitting and ruminating and contemplating and journaling. You know, it's the same health benefits you get if you're journaling or if you're like contemplating a Bible verse. There's a lot of good benefits, but, but sitting and ruminating about your, the past, no. Sitting and ruminating about the future, no, that's not helpful at all unless you're specifically doing a visualization practice or a emotional clearing practice, which are different skills altogether. So, I mean, I could obviously go on and on about this because I love this, this topic, but there is a very, just like with, you know, if you join a CrossFit gym, there is a specific sequence to learning a complex movement, like a muscle up. You don't just jump in and do muscle ups. You don't just jump in and become an expert meditator. It's it, you're training your mind. You're training different aspects of your mind. You got to train the physical bodies and the, the brain, um, the heart and the biome, which are the big mind and the little minds. You got to train um, the different ways that the brain works, which, you know, is perspective taking, um, direct perception, imagery, uh, rational, linear thinking. And you've got to train to open up to access, you know, what we call whole mind which is the whole energetic field of experience as mind or awakened awareness or witnessing. And so all these things have different practices and different skills, but there's a progression, you know, you, in the seals, we call it crawl, walk, run. You crawl before you walk, you walk before you run. You didn't just pick up a weapon and start shooting out of a helicopter at a moving vehicle, right? That'd be a disaster. You start with basically learning how to strip the weapon, put it back together and then to load it and then to dry fire it. And then the two 25 yard pistol rain and, range. And then, you know, you start slowly moving forward. So meditation has this same kind of progressive nature to it, to really develop and strengthen the different aspects of your mind. I had hmm. never heard that approach. And I love it. Of uh, You know, I, I know that agitation is a response to stress. And so it's right. restlessness. Right. And so that approach of saying, okay, let's do some breathing to get you in the right state where maybe you can tackle a mindfulness practice. I mean, I feel like I've, I've learned something that I can take away from this podcast already. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. No extra charge. <laughs> right. I was going to say, Coaching are you sure? Here. Because you just coached us on how to coach some yes, of our people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, talk to us a little bit about your, your work, Mark, and uh, what we were just discussing. Is this what you bring into uh, unbeatable mind? Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about it and, and kind of, um, the work that's going on there. Yeah, I, I'm thrilled to. It's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> <clears throat> and it did come out of, I mean, there, there was my personal journey. So personal journey was, you know, started out with hard physical training and then added meditation. And it was like, okay, A and B, put those together. They seem to work. But then I started to work with visualization and I had some profound experiences with visualization like stunning experiences. And so I began to combine, you know, I looked at visualization as a, as a subset of kind of this, this practice toolkit, which you could loosely call meditation, but meditation is, there's many, many different faces to it. So I started to say, okay, physical training is not separate from these things because I can be, you know, I can use these tools before my physical training 
I could use these tools during my physical training and I could use these tools after my physical training and also for different reasons or, or for different effect. I, I started to learn all that in my early 20s through my martial arts training and my Zen training combined with hardcore athleticism, right? And each one of those alone will develop you in a, in a certain distinct way, right? They will. So like if you are just an endurance athlete, you will develop a certain mental fortitude and ability to deal with discomfort and pain and the ability to manage your internal dialogue. All these are really important skills. And so I brought those into the SEAL teams and for great effect. Developing the skill of concentration and mindfulness allowed me to be a better leader, right? I was less reactionary. I was able to take the perspective of my teammates and put them first. I was able to see the bigger picture while also not losing sight of the details. All this came from my mindfulness practice. It didn't come from my sports training, right? It would have been completely lost on me. And then the imagery work, this is what supercharged everything because I learned that with imagery, imagery is really the charge that we bring to the energy in our body-mind system. And so if you begin a practice and you have a negative image, then eventually you're going to invoke negative uh, feeling states. And then you're going to attach meaning to those feeling states, which becomes, you know, one way that we experience emotions. But if I have a positive image of myself, a positive image of what I intend to accomplish, a positive image of where I'm going, and I've actually connected to that and practice that every day, then I, I create this kind of memory of a future that hasn't happened yet, but mm -hmm. it will more likely happen the more I practice it. Can you give us an example? Just, yeah, just sure. for our listeners, uh, so as they're tracking what you're saying. Totally. Okay. So my first experience with imagery came from my competitive swimming at Colgate University. I had a pioneer swim coach, he gave me a stopwatch. He said, Mark, I want you to practice your, your race, which is the 200 meter breaststroke in your head before you go to bed not once, but you know, for the next two months, he said, and I was like, okay, I was kind of a Guinea pig for him. I literally was one of the most difficult It was harder than doing the actual swim practices of five or 6,000 meters in the pool. I would close my eyes and click the thing. And I'd see myself, you know, the hear the gun go off and I'd see myself jump in the water. And, you know, within seconds, I'd be thinking about my girlfriend or, you know what I mean? The homework I hadn't done. And I told him, I said, I don't, get this. And I'm not sure why I'm doing this. And he said, stick with it. Trust me. And um, so I did. And after about a month, I was able to swim the entire race, but it was episodic and choppy. I would lose myself, you know, kind of like with mindfulness practice, I'd lose the image and I have to come back and I lose it and I come back, but I, you know, muddle through the whole race. So I, I talked to him about my results. I didn't see any improvement in the water. And I was like, this is where I'm at. And I'm still struggling with it. He goes, Stick with it, please. You know, make sure you get a good time. So first, I don't know why I did it because I had a lot of other distractions going on and as a sophomore and, you know, in college, but I did it because I trusted this guy. And so I kept doing it. And after several more, a couple more months, actually, probably, I was able to stabilize my image to where I could hold the image myself swimming all eight lengths and touching the wall. And I click off the stopwatch. And the time settled into this, uh, pretty much the same time within just a few hundredths of a second every time. Wow. And it was a full three seconds faster than I'd ever swum in my life, that race. Wow. Yeah. Now, this, this took 
place during my uh, sophomore spring. During that time, I was making a bid to join an overseas study program. And uh, I was a long shot for that study program because all, you know, it was an economic study program going to London, London School of Economics. All the students who were accepted were 4.0 students and I was a (laughs) 2.85. But the guy running the program, the econ professor was a swimmer and I used to see him at the pool and I was pleasant to him. I talked to him. I asked him how things were going. I expressed my interest in the program. You know, I did kind of like the positive mental positive psychology on him, not knowing that's what I was doing. I was just pleasant. I didn't take anything for granted. I said I was interested in the program. I went to every single meeting and lo and behold, one of the guys who was selected, like goes on some bender for like two weeks, misses two critical meetings, the kind of meetings that say, you know, if you miss this meeting, you're out. And sure enough, he was out and yours truly was in. So there I find myself in London and I do that and I come back that's a whole cool story in itself. But I come back my senior. No. Yeah. What year are we now? <laughs> so that was junior year. Sorry. Junior year. I did the imagery work and then junior senior fall. I go overseas. I think whatever I might be missing by a semester. At any rate, I come back and um, I'm well into the semester. I haven't thought about swimming because I kind of missed the boat on that. And I see coach Benson on campus. And he says, hey, Mark, welcome. You know, we did some happy, glad talk and asked me how London was. And I said, great. And he goes, Hey, by the way, we have our championship meet coming up. I'd love to have you in the water. I still consider you part of the team. And of course my mind is saying, no way in hell. I don't want to do this, but I, my head is nodding. Yes. You know? sure. <laughs> <laughs> so there I find myself on the block, the gun goes off. I jump in the water and I'm just rocking this thing. And I'm like, I swum this race before. And I touched the pad and I look up and there's the time. Okay, fast forward. So that stayed with me. Fast forward to, that was 1985, I graduated. Now it's 1988, 1988, and I've been meditating now for three years, and I've been working toward my MBA and CPA, and I've been working full-time as an accountant slash auditor, first for Coopers and Librand, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, and then Arthur Anderson, which is no longer in business. And, um, And that's what that process I talk about in the book, Way the Seal, led me to uncover that my real calling was to be a warrior. And then I learned about the seals. And then, you know, I had some pretty cool experiences that, that told me that's the path to go, all of which, you know, resulted from my meditation practice. Well, then, so I decided I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And of course, the Navy hadn't even admitted me yet. In fact, the recruiter was saying, don't get your hopes up, because if we take anyone, we might take just one person, maybe two this year through the officer candidate school program into the SEAL teams. Because it's just, you know, most people don't know this, but the SEALs are a very, very small group. Back then, about 800 people strong. And most of the officers, I wanted to be an officer because I was coming in as an MBA and a CPA and, you know, college degree. I didn't think that the enlisted route was appropriate for me, although I've since changed my mind. It would have been a great way to go, you know, to get that formative experience. But I thought I wanted to be an officer. And just most of those, if not all of them, come through the Naval Academy and a few from ROTC reserve officer training course. So they're already in the military while they're in college. And I was a little bit older. I was going to be 25 or so, but I wanted this so badly. I just like put my blinders on and said, I'm going to go for this. So I worked my ass off obviously in my business to keep on track there, but then I would train in the morning. I would train at lunch and I would train in the evening and I go to school at night working on my MBA. And in the morning, 
I did a, before I would go out for my run I, or after, I guess, wherever I decided to place it, I would do my sitting practice and the sitting practice in, included box breathing followed by visualization. And what I visualized was myself going through SEAL training and graduating and just like dominating it. And I got very, very, as well, I should say very detailed, but as detailed as I could. And mind you, there wasn't a lot of imagery about the SEALs that I could build up. There were no movies at the time, no TV shows. All I had was a recruiting video that I watched about <laughs> 20 times. And then I put myself into it. Now, the experience I had, because that was your question, was sort of similar to the experience I had with the swimming, but, but different in a way. Because swimming, I was, I was practicing a specific repetitive skill. I was breaststroke. You know, and now we know most Olympians use imagery like that. Mark Phelps, you know, credits that for his great success. Michael Phelps, I mean. And so I was like, well, if it works for that, I wonder if it works for something like the SEAL training where you have to become a certain type of person. Hmm. So in another way, I, I took a flyer and I said, I bet you if visualization works for a task-oriented doing skill, like a martial art or a, a sporting event or, or like shooting, then I wonder if it can work on a inner or soft, what you call the softer skill of being a certain type of person, i.e. being worthy of being a seal. What would it feel like? What would I look like if I was worthy enough to earn the Navy SEAL Trident and to get through the nine months of training, you know, dominating? So I visualized that and I didn't, you know, it didn't take me a day to visualize a day of SEAL training. I visualized every day. I visualized the whole thing in just a few minutes and different scenery would come up and different imagery and every one of them. I was, you know, it wasn't like a dream where you're suddenly pinned down and suffocating. It was, I was, I had the control. I get to decide the outcome. And so I created the outcome I wanted, which was me dominating that, being a great teammate, feeling good. And um, earning the trident, which is this, you know, the insignia that the SEALs earn when they graduate. So I practice every day just on blind faith. But about nine months into this practice, I had a pretty extraordinary thing happen where I woke up and I went from like, it happened over a couple of days where I went from, this is blind faith. I'm just keep training and hoping to where I had this sense of utter certainty that it had already happened. And I just needed to, I needed to let basically the world catch up with me where I'd already established the win in my mind or in the matrix of, you know, whatever you would call this energy field that we all live in. I had established the win and now I just needed to go through the motions. You know, I needed to go through the motions in a really powerful way, of course, so I couldn't slack off, but for that, that was the easy part for me, you know? And sure enough, about, a week later, I get a call from the recruiter and he's like, guess what? <laughs> I didn't even think this was going to happen. I thought you were nuts, but you got the billet. You got the, you know, the selection. I was one of two people selected to go to SEAL training after Officer Canada School. He said, statistically, you would have had a better chance becoming an astronaut. I was like, well, maybe I'll look at that next. So that was profound. And, you know, I've always thought that imagery work when when performed with a fertile 
mind, meaning a mind that's been trained properly, is the holy grail for leaders and for all people, actually, to achieve their fullest potential and to also um, begin to understand, you know, where their, where their biggest limitations are, you know, how trauma affected them and, um, and how to hear their intuitive, you know, inner guidance system. So imagery, being able to trust spontaneous imagery and being able to create powerful imagery. It's a lost art. And it's one of my missions to bring that back. But in order for imagery to work, we need to have the body mind system in a very, very clear, calm state. And we have to have the mindful uh, application of the metacognitive split between thinking and higher self witnessing. We have to approach imagery from that perspective. Otherwise, it, it ends up being fantasy, you know, and or this is why the kind of manifestation doesn't really work because people are manifesting from ego. You can't manifest from ego. You can, you can get limited results that way, but oftentimes you, you get things that also counteract those results because your subconscious programming is not aligned with it or it's not in alignment yeah. with your spiritual's calling, your spirit's calling. Do you guys I'm agree? so glad you said that because a lot of people say, well, I can't just think positive thoughts and everything's going to be positive, right? And I no, would say that, that's true, that's right? Important. It only goes so far. And you also touched on this idea of we got to go out there and we got to apply ourselves, right? It's not just right. sitting on the couch and thinking good things, but uh, what the mind believes, I mean, it's cliche, right? What the mind believes you'll, you'll achieve, uh, which is, is fascinating. What the mind can do uh, when you harness it is fascinating. Let me ask you this, Mark. You know, it was kind of a, a famous story with Michael Phelps. He was very big on visualization, but he also would visualize things going wrong. Like very famous story. He visualized what it would be like if his goggles filled up with water. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, that happened in one of his races. And he was able to actually swim blind and actually, you know, win the racing and get a gold, which is, is fascinating to me. So my question to you, Mark, is when you do visualization with your, your clients, do you spend some time on visualizing not just the perfect scenario, but also disaster scenarios? Is that part of it or, or um, not? Yes, but no, we have to get clear about what we're talking about here. There's different ways of using imagery. And I think visualization is a specific way. So when I say visualizing, you're creating an image that you want, okay. you desire, and you're practicing it. What you're talking about, Michael Phelps was doing, was imagining a scenario that could go wrong or that would be suboptimal and, and basically creating a workaround in your mind in advance. But you're not practicing that because you don't want to attract that. You don't want mm -hmm. to grease the mental groove of your goggles falling off. I like that. Navy SEALs do the same thing, right? We would visualize what mission success would look like. We'd visualize each stage of the mission. We know what we want is a desired outcome, but we also recognize that no plan survives contact with the enemy. So we also go through the contingencies of what could happen at each stage, what could go wrong. And while we're going through those, we talk through it and we imagine the workaround. And so that imagination helps us get creative because we've pre-planned you know, an SOP when, when something breaks. A good example of this is the um, bin Laden raid, right? It was, it was a senior chief on the raid who, because they were using helicopters that had never, they've never flown in before, he 
implemented the SOP of practicing down helicopter drills relentlessly. It wasn't hmm. Admiral McRaven or the leadership team. It was this guy who said, okay, we, we can imagine because we're the operators ground level. We have the ground level truth. We can see what could possibly go wrong. And we don't know about these helicopters and they would, you know, do this anyways with the other helicopters, but the other helicopters, they've already done it a hundred thousand times, but they had to do it with these. So they started practicing and sure enough, one of the helicopters went down right as they were inserting on that mission. But because they had imagined that happening and, and kind of known what they were going to do, they were on it like white on rice and it didn't even slow them down. So that's imagination and rehearsing workarounds for potential obstacles. And we also use imagination to begin to create imagery around an unknown or uncertain future. But, you know, we can we can imagine something different, just like an architect would imagine a whole new type of building structure. That's first imagination. And then they'll, that image will kind of be burned in their mind right? as they continue to practice it. And then while they're drawing the plans and continuing to work the project, it'll just keep getting refined and refined and refined. You're really talking about the difference between imagery and training, I think. Well, training, right. Visualization to me is when you have an image, you're going to train that image. Okay. Michael Phelps has an image of what the perfect event is. You practice that in your mind. Now it's going to be maybe different for different events. Maybe a sports team will have different imagery for playing against different teams, but it's an image of what the ideal solution or outcome looks like. And then you practice it to win it in your mind before you step onto the battle. Whereas imagination, again, is what could go wrong or can I imagine in a different scenario? And again, be careful what you ask for. You, you got to be careful about how much time and energy you put into the, the negative side or the what could go wrong side, because then you're catastrophizing and you could be, mm. you know, attracting that. Now what we know about quantum mechanics and, and kind of how the mind works is, you know, it's a vibrational field that you're creating. So if you're creating, putting too much energy into the negative don't want this vibrational field, then, then that's going to be drawing energy away from the do want vibrational field. Mm. And then the other way to think of imagery is spontaneous. And I call this direct perception. Direct perception is, it can be a, a sensation, like an intuitive hit. Usually that, you know, you, we get that from our biomes, you know, it's really like survival based. Like a good example of that is when I was at, um, training at SEAL Team 3, we were doing some shooting at a range and I was walking toward the range early in the morning. This is a casual, this wasn't like buds SEAL training with instructors yelling at me. We were on our own as a platoon. We we're practicing our skills. So I wasn't, you know, stressed out. I it wasn't on any timeline. I was walking up to the range with a couple of their guys. I was going to kind of like get a set up and go through a first round of, you know, kind of warm up shooting. And as I was walking, I felt a hand on my shoulder and I, I, I felt like I heard the word stop. And so I stopped because I noticed that, you know, and I had enough self-awareness to be like, that was different. Stop. And as soon as I stopped, a bullet was shot or cracked off behind me and it, it whizzed right by my ear. I could wow. feel the wind on my ear. And had I wow. taken yeah, that hmm. next step forward, it would have lodged right in the back of my head. So what is that? Well, one answer is it could be my gut, my biome, which is intelligent, right? There's, there's more genes in my biome than there are in my genetic makeup. There's more microscopic animals down there who are in a symbiotic relationship with me who want to live. 
and they want the best for me, believe it or not. And they have probably a connection to, you know, some energetic field that you don't necessarily have when you're in your linear brain. And they'll, they'll tell you that there's danger. And so they're doing studies now in the military about like, how do guys know or ladies know just intuitively or instinctually that there's a bomb planted under the road? You can't see it with your eye, but it's there. Like the number of instances of this are just extraordinary that is now just, just assumed to be real. Like we don't second guess it anymore. Back in the 70s and even 80s, anytime, you know, someone wanted to do a study and there were some great studies on the non-physical aspects of being a military or a warrior, you know, they got shut down because the bureaucrats and the generals like, yeah, this isn't real. But now I think the bloom is off. People are like, yeah, this is real. So that saved my life then and many times, many other times, as well as many of my teammates, is that sensitivity to the instinctual drive of your biome. If you are a very spiritually oriented person, you believe in angels and spirit guides, it could be that that was a protector, you know? a spiritual being that was like, yeah, let's just make sure Mark lives another day. You know what I mean? He's got important work to do someday. <laughs> he hasn't learned his lesson. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Or trust your gut, right? Trust your, trust gut. your gut. Yeah. Then there's the, um, so that's a feeling or a sensation. So we were talking about imagery and visualization, but you know, a lot of the work that I've done um, in psychotherapy, EMDR, hypnotherapy, all these different things. I, I love, love to explore all these things because they're all just coming at the human condition from different lenses, different perspectives. And uh, if you look at the human being as a kind of a holographic projection of the mind, you can slice it and dice it in 10 million ways. And everyone's going to be right from that perspective, right? And, and so this other perspective is that we can, um, if we get still enough and quiet enough, then there's imagery that we don't necessarily generate. Like when you, when you use your mind to visualize or to imagine, you're using your brain. You're using a very specific area of your brain and a skill that you develop or you have naturally. Everyone has it because they can fantasize, but this is directed fantasy, right? Imagination and then visualization is practiced fantasy in a sense. So you're not really fantasizing anymore when it's intentional outcome you're looking for. It's a, it's, a, it's, some, it's a part of your brain that you're activating and you're using that imagery for an intentional purpose. Well, what I'm talking about is not that. It's not coming from your brain, your head brain. It's coming from some other aspect of your mind. And you know, anyone who's done like holotropic breath work or a long, we call it breath empowerment long. We have these 45 minute long intense breathing sessions that have three pauses. And each pause is like this, this ridiculously extended breath hold dropping into just pure silence. And we debrief these afterwards and they're extraordinary. People have all sorts of imagery come to them. Again, they're not, they're not trying to make it come to them. They're not actively trying to think of something. They're not imagining anything. It's just boom, suddenly like grandpa's right there. Or they're in this beautiful area and, you know, an animal comes to them or, you know, all, all sorts of imagery will come to you when your mind is in that rarefied state of stillness. And I think that's, and same thing, like you, you could equate that to dreaming. Like what is the imagery that comes to you in dreaming? Like you're not activating that. Where does the light even come from when you're dreaming? Cause your eyes are closed. It's very fascinating. That's just, that's an aspect of your mind feeding you imagery that is beyond your brain. And it's got information. 
like dreams have really powerful, potent information from you. The imagery that comes from you in flow states or in, when you're sitting in nature or when you're, you know, at the end of a long breath or a meditation practice and you just kind of drop into the void, that information is, is really important for you, I believe, right? It's, it's your subconscious mind or it's an aspect of your mind that's trying to nudge you in a certain direction and to help you learn and grow. So that's another way that imagery works. And that, that also can be trained. Mm, I'm digging this line of conversation. And I'm thinking as I'm hearing you speak, because Ron and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, to try to tell, and you're a very successful entrepreneur. I'm running several companies all at once. Um, I'd be curious what your advice would be for entrepreneurs listening as far as how important is it for them to open the space uh, to take some of the time to work on some of the areas that we're talking about here. Because a lot of entrepreneurs will say, I don't have time to sit and visualize. I don't have time to sit and do breath work. I don't have, you know, the 45 minutes to do this or introspect. What do you say to them? Because you've walked that walk. Miyu Mari Musashi, the great swordsman, would say, if you don't have time to do the work at all levels, then you're planning to die as a swordsman. So if I decided as a Navy SEAL that I didn't have time to develop my mind in these ways, then I was planning to die because it's such a high risk environment. So the question is what, what, what are you, at what cost are you not doing these skills? Not practicing these skills. What's the cost? We're heading into a VUCA world. You know, it's volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, the only answer for dealing with volatility is essentially to become, you know, be, be the center of the storm, to be that calm center post so you're not reacting to the constant change and the constant volatility. That can only come through meditation, right? Mindful, you know, that type of like, I've got this and I'm grounded and I'm watching what's going on and I'm not getting drawn into all these dramas reacting to all the crazy things that are happening in our world. And for uncertainty, we need to be able to hold a vision of a future that's beyond the uncertainty because no plan survives contact with reality. Or like Mike Tyson said, every plan sounds great until you get punched in the face. So the way through uncertainty is through imagery and being able to hold a vision for a more positive future for yourself, your team, your family, your company. Hmm. And that's something you practice, right? And so a lot of entrepreneurs, they fail forward fast. I get that, you know, like Jack Dorsey, Twitter, Twitter was a whole different company and they were going out of business until, you know, the engineer said, what about this little microblogging thing we were using internally? Do you think there's a market for that? You know, and then he had the foresight or they had the foresight to see something beyond, you know, their failure. Complexity is another one, right? The world is way beyond, you know, complicated. It's now complex, meaning it's impossible to understand. It's chaos theory magnified and combined with human dynamics, right? And this is why all the economic models are just absolutely flawed and broken. You know, they're laughable, you know, like what's going on. We won't talk politics. We didn't decided we weren't going to talk <laughs> politics, but you know, to think that we could just keep doing what we've always done and expect the same results is laughable. It doesn't work that way. So complexity, we deal with that by 
understanding, first of all, that things are complex system and that they're going to be second, third and fourth order consequences to our decisions. And so to be able to take perspectives that are multidimensional, that comes from meditation practice and from mindfulness, right? And, and these type of inner skills. And ambiguity, the, the A from ambiguity is we had a saying in the seals that doubt is eliminated through action. Fail forward fast, fast twitch iteration, meaning you, you get confident enough to find one action that's going to move you toward less ambiguity and you take action and then you activate the OODA loop, which is where you observe what happened, what are the results, how to go, reorient to the situation anew, take another action, small one, right? Or make, make a decision and take another action, observe, orient, decide and act. And so what we do to eliminate ambiguity is to chunk things down into really small targets and to be able to execute on those targets really quickly. You know, one example of that in our more modern business sense is the minimal viable product, right? Like getting it out the door, expecting it to have warts and all. Great. Then you get, you activate that feedback loop and iterate from there. You have to be willing to move really fast and be willing to fail and realize that there's no such thing as failure. There's just winning and learning. So my proposition is that these are really valid skills for leaders and they can be trained, but they're what we call vertical development skills instead of horizontal. A horizontal development skill would be like an old school leadership training where you go learn about creating vision, mission, values, you know, culture, what drives culture, strategy, and tactics. And you're like, okay, I've got this set of tools. To, but it doesn't do anything to change you as a human being or the people in your organization. You might become more effective at doing things, but you're not more effective at being better. So vertical skills. So all those skills are still important. But when you add the vertical skills of contemplation, reflection, perspective taking, mindfulness, and uh, the ability to manage your arousal or stress response, then all of a sudden you begin to activate vertical development or vertical growth, where now you start to operate from a higher perspective or what we call a plateau. And um, that higher perspective means you're more aware, you're taking in more information, you're using these skills like intuition and insight and you know, the skills that we've been talking about. And then when you bring those, those new higher vertical skills of beingness to bear in what you do as an organization, then you're more effective at that level, at all levels, actually. And also, it, it tends to deepen your connection to other, you know, the people in your team. And the, we have this saying that the team is the new leader and the team craves connection, whereas most teams are disengaged and disconnected. And it's often the leader that is the, the right reason for that. And so it, this brings deeper connection and authenticity because it also brings great humility, which is one of the outcomes of, of a long-term commitment to mindfulness or, or an internal practice, let's just say. We've talked a lot about the mind, but, but I think you would agree, Mark, that this is mind, body, and spirit. To perform at your best, all yeah. elements got to be there. We haven't talked a lot about what you do on the physical side, but, but I know you do a lot of that as well. This, this has gone so fast and we're out of time, but let's go to our signature question, Mark. And we like to ask every guest, what is your greatest failure that you want to share and what did you learn from it? I have a lot of like classic failures, you know, business bombs that blew up and having businesses stolen from me, 
you know, attracting narcissists who, right? So I recognize all those as failures, but they weren't, you know, they're great points for me to learn. So I would say that, you know, again, I, I just don't have the same association with the word failure that most people do. But my, one of my biggest learnings was that trauma, childhood trauma plays an enormous role in my life and in pretty much everyone's life that I've ever been involved with on this planet. It is one of the major things that we have to understand and deal with as individuals, whether we're, we're personally trying to grow or as leaders, we, we contextualize that as leadership development. Trauma doesn't discriminate. It comes in many forms and it leads to things that um, allow, you know, that cause us to be less than whole or less than um, feeling content and peaceful and happy. And then it also can lead to different kind of patterns that are negative and um, damaging to others, addiction patterns, codependency patterns, these types of things. So, you know, part of our training in my life has been the, on the emotional side. So it is when you say mind, body, spirit, I say, yeah, it's, but it's even deeper than that. It's physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and spiritual. Those are the aspects of us that we really need to work on because they all begin to intersect and intertwine until you experience life as one wholeness where your, your body and, and your mind and your spirit are not separate things. It's just all one integrated wholeness. That's what the human experience is, is supposed to be. But then we separate from ourselves in a very young age because of trauma and the trauma, again, doesn't have to be like I got abused physically or sexually. It can be just emotionally withholding of love or bullying, or it could just be trauma from the incessant negativity from society or your peers. So I'm talking about both really overt as well as subtle trauma, but that's, you know, that stays with us forever because it shapes our biases. It shapes our patterns and it shapes our, um, how we react and how we frame our relationship to the world. And so, though it's not a failure for me, I, I wish I had been able to really peel the onion on that at a much earlier age. I, I came into therapy at around 31 because I'm married a therapist. <laughs> That'll help. <laughs> That'll yeah, do it. help. But I had some real disasters prior to them. And, you know, I struggled with, you know, the, my family of origin stuff, which included a lot of alcohol and a lot of, you know, physical abuse and anger and rage and and, you know, that really affects the young psyche. And even though I had all these other skills to deal with it, and I'm confident that that made me one hell of a good Navy SEAL from that mighty oak standpoint, I had to learn the softer skills, which then helped me understand that um, there's much more to me than what I thought I was. And when I see people who haven't done that kind of self-awareness work, and they just assume that they are who they are, because that's who they are, that's a fixed mindset, you know, you know, um, credit to Carol Dweck or who are happy with just things being the way they are, even though they, they are a victim in their own mind. And I recognize that they just haven't, they've got unresolved trauma issues. They just haven't really done the work. And that locks us kind of in mediocrity or at least in a, a state of being less than what we could be. So we have to develop ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally and spiritually and bring all those aspects back together into wholeness. This is what our training on Beal Mind does. It's a, it's a process of integration. We call those five aspects, five, the five mountains of training, physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and spiritual. 
And we try to approach our development from that interdimensional wholeness perspective vertically, you know, to evolve vertically so that we can then do things more effectively and for, for greater good. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.